Good morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 5 to 14 this morning. Uh, And while you turn there, I just want to say, uh, I want to encourage you to please come to the congregational prayer meeting this evening. Uh, Jesus has said, uh, my house shall be a house of prayer. Amen. And he is worthy of us gathering to cry out to him in prayer. We will also have a special guest uh, this evening at the congregational prayer meeting. Uh, We want to pray for other churches in our region. And the United Christian Church of Dubai, uh, just like ECC, was established 50 years ago. So they are celebrating uh, their Golden Jubilee 50 years uh, next month in March. And so I asked Pastor John Folmar, their senior pastor, if he would uh, share a short video so we could pray for them. But he said, I'm actually going to come to your meeting. I'd love to come and fellowship with you all. And earlier this week in the Council of Evangelical Churches gathering of pastors and ministry leaders from throughout the country, uh, Pastor John actually uh, gave a short presentation uh, of the history of uh, God's faithfulness at uh, the United Christian Church of Dubai, and I've asked him if he would share that with us this evening. So it will be very edifying and encouraging and a great way uh, to pray for their church. So I do encourage you, love to see you come out, and we cry out to God together. Uh, If you would... uh, Pray with me one more time before we look into Hebrews 1. O Heavenly Father, by your Spirit at work in us, would you show us your Son seated on his throne, worthy of all our adoration and praise through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe the greatest runner whom I've ever met personally is a former member of this church, of ECC, and his name is Steve Smith. Uh, Some of you know uh, Steve, who was a member here for several years. Uh, I met Steve several years ago when I moved here, and uh, the first uh, first year when I met him, I met him a few days after he had completed a 137-kilometer race through the mountains in Oman. And uh, this was not uh, an ordinary terrain running on flat ground. No, this was through the mountains, so rough terrain with steep ascent, uh, an ascent of almost 7,000 meters. And he ran for over 40 hours to complete that race. And he said, along the way, I was asking him about it, I said, well, how do you not drop down and, and die. He said, along the way, there are several checkpoints. So you have to stop at these checkpoints, and they, uh, you, know, you rehydrate, and you refuel. They fill up your water bottle. They give you some food to carry in your backpack, uh, and all of that. And you make it through these checkpoints, and then you keep on going. And I said, uh, yeah, 137 kilometers, that's long. What, what was the hardest part of the race for you? And he said, well, the hardest moment in this race was the final checkpoint. Now, I don't know if this was intentional or strategic on the organizer's part, but the final checkpoint, I mean, he's been running for over 35 hours, close to 40, and this is the highest part of the peak. And he said, you come to this checkpoint, and there's this beautiful mountaintop resort over there. And, you know, you're thinking of a bed, a nice warm bed, hot food, a nice warm shower, And he said, oh my gosh, I really, really was tempted to just give up, have a good night's rest, 
and go home. But Steve kept running. And he had companions with him who gave him encouragement. And through mutual encouragement and their companionship, they kept running. They kept going. And Steve finished. Took him about 43 hours and uh, something minutes to finish the race. The temptation to give up and go home. That's what the original audience of Hebrews faced. These people were under all kinds of pressure to give up, to abandon this new movement that they were part of now with its strange teaching about a crucified Messiah who rose from the dead. They were tempted to leave this and go back to live once again under the old covenant law. If they did that, if they went back to being merely Jews, there would be no more persecution They wouldn't have all this pain and all this suffering that they were going through for the sake of the name of Christ. After all, the old covenant was God's revelation. And it was magnificent. Not only was it directly revealed from God, it was given in a most spectacular fashion on a mountaintop, delivered through thousands and thousands of angels. You've got to remember the main argument of the letter to the Hebrews which was originally a sermon that was preached, is to keep moving forward. You can't go back to an earlier stage of God's plan. You can't stand still and take it easy. No, we must keep moving forward in the journey. And and that's why the author begins this letter in chapter 1 here by showing from the scriptures that the Son of God is superior to the angels. He wants us to see that the Son's word, God's final word in His Son, is far, far greater than the old covenant and is far superior to those through whom the old covenant law was delivered, namely the angels. So the theme of today's text and of today's sermon is the superiority of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, over the angels, and over anything else that might tempt you to give up your faith in Him. And so this morning, dear brothers and sisters, I want to call us to wholehearted devotion to the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might worship Him and inherit the salvation that only He provides. So as we read this text now, I just want to tell you, you'll see a number of quotations from the Old Testament, and they are structured in three sets, all right? There are three sets of comparison between the sun and the angels, okay? We'll see this, and you'll see it clearly as we go along. Set one is in verses five and six, set two is from verses seven to 12, and set three is in verses 13 and 14. Let's read God's word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. 
But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So what we see there is a number of citations from the Old Testament to show the superiority of the Son. Remember, the people to which the author is speaking were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, which was delivered by angels. Right? That's affirmed in Scripture. If There are several other passages that teach that. If you think of Galatians chapter 3, for instance, Galatians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, the law, that is the Old Covenant, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. There are other passages that teach that as well. And so the author of Hebrews is showing these people that the Old Testament itself, that Old Covenant itself, actually affirms the superiority of the one who has now come, the Son, over the angels who delivered the law. And so this morning we're going to see three reasons in this passage why the Son is superior to angels and therefore worthy of our full devotion. We'll see first that he is superior in his status. Second, we'll see that the Son is superior in his substance. And third, we'll see that the Son is superior in his salvation. So that's my outline for you this morning. If you follow in the bulletin, it'll be uh, easier and even clearer for you. Superior in his status, superior in his substance, superior in his salvation. First, the Son is superior in his status. I told you that the text divides into three sets of citations. And to see the son's superiority in status, we will look at the outermost sets. All right? So think again of the sandwich in this text. All right? It's like a sandwich. There are, there's one set of comparisons, the top slice of bread, another set of comparison, which is the bottom slice of bread, and then another comparison in the middle, the center, which is the meat. All right? So to see the son's superiority in status, we're looking at comparison 1, set 1, verses 5 and 6, and set 3, which is 13 and 14. All right, you're following? Let's look at this. The son is superior in his status. And the author here is expanding on the idea that he introduced, which we saw last week in verses 3 and 4. All right, so think again of verses 3 and 4. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Son, Jesus, has become superior to the angels, and he has inherited a name more excellent than them. What does that mean? 
that he became superior to the angels, that he inherited a name more excellent than them. What is this name that he inherits? Well, the name, as you can see in verse 5, is son. That's what the author shows us, verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When the author speaks of Jesus inheriting the name, he's talking about the name son. And to say that Jesus inherited the name son is a way of speaking of the enthronement of Jesus as the son of God. After making purification from sins when he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and became superior to the angels and was given this title, Son. Now, if you're a careful thinker, a biblical thinker, you will be asking the question, wait, wait, wait. I thought that Jesus was already the Son of God. Isn't he eternally the Son, God the Son? And the answer to that is yes. But wait, did he become the son of God and receive this title when he was exalted, as Hebrews 1 says? And the answer is yes. So which one is it? Is he eternally the son or did he become the son? And the answer to that is yes. It's both. You see, the logic of Hebrews here is that Jesus is the son who became the Son. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, God the Son from all eternity, who took on our flesh, became a man so that he was fully God and fully man, the incarnate Son of God. And as one who was fully God and fully man, he paid the price for our sins, dying on the cross. He defeated sin and death, was raised from the dead on the third day, and in fulfillment of God's promises... He was exalted on high and enthroned as the king from the line of David, who is the divine and human son of God, seated on God's throne forever. And he has fulfilled God's promises. He has inherited the great name which God promised originally to Abraham. He has inherited the great name. That promise was reiterated to King David that God would make his name great. And Jesus now from the line of David is the son of David who perfectly fulfills all these promises. He has been appointed heir over all the world and all nations are under his rule and sovereign reign. He is the divine son who is enthroned and reigns as king. I told you last week that there are two senses in which the Bible speaks of Jesus as the son of God. One is that he is eternal and divine. He is the divine Son of God. He is God the Son who is begotten from the Father from all eternity, forever existing as God the Son. And the second way that Scripture presents Jesus as the Son of God is that He is the human descendant from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, who fulfills the promise given to David of a son from his line who would be king and forever reign on the throne of God. That's what we're seeing here in Hebrews 1.5. To realize this, you have to notice the source of these citations. Look at the first one. You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
That citation is from Psalm 2, which was read earlier today, where the Lord, in the context, God installs the son of David as king over Zion, and he gives him authority to rule over all the nations of the earth. The other citation is like it. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. And that comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God was making a covenant with King David. God made a promise to King David that a future king would come from his line. A son would come who would reign forever and ever on the throne, whose rule would extend to the ends of the earth, and who would live in a relationship with God as father and son. So what we are seeing here is that Jesus is this son who is enthroned as king. That is his status. He is God's son and the enthroned king. What does God demand of the angels in regard to this enthroned son? They must bow down in worship. Look at verse 6. And this is the point in this first set of comparisons. Verse 6 says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Again, we see this title here, Firstborn. It's speaking of Jesus as the firstborn. What does it mean that he is the firstborn? It doesn't mean that he is a creature. It means that he is the heir. The firstborn has the rights of inheritance. Jesus is the one who inherits the universe as its rightful king. And when you read this verse, you might be inclined, as some interpreters uh, do, to think that it's speaking of Jesus' incarnation, right? When God brings the firstborn into the world, it says, let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, you might think this is the scene, uh, you know, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the angels uh, came and, and paid homage. Uh, that's not what it's speaking of. Uh, the term over there, world, the word world in the original language is a very unique and specific word that is not normally used to describe our world, this world. It's not speaking of this terrestrial world or earth. The, the term over there, it comes again in chapter 2, verse 5. Again, I said it's a unique world, word in, in the Greek. And in chapter 2, verse 5, it refers to the world to come. The author actually says the world to come over there. That's what it's speaking of. The heavenly world, the new creation, the kingdom of heaven, that which is inaugurated by Christ in his resurrection. So when it speaks of the firstborn coming into the world, it's speaking of Jesus after his resurrection, in his ascension and exaltation, he enters God's heavenly realm. And upon his entry, his exaltation, the angels are commanded to worship him. Jesus entered into this world to come and was exalted and crowned as son of God and king upon the throne. And the angels must bow down and worship this king. So that's the first set of citations there, the top slice of bread, that shows us the son as superior in his status. He is the, the king and the angels bow down. The third set of citations, the bottom slice of bread in this sandwich of quotations, 
shows us the same thing. The son is superior in his status. So we're still on point one, but I'm going to ask you to jump to verses 13 and 14. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Once again, the author is showing us the enthronement of Jesus as Lord, as King upon the throne. It is showing how God has appointed him as sovereign Lord. And the author is citing here from Psalm 110 verse 1. Uh, Psalm 110, this is one of Jesus' favorite verses in the Old Testament that he applies to himself. In fact, it's one of the most important Old Testament passages that is cited again and again and again in the New Testament concerning Christ. In the original passage in Psalm 110, the Lord, that is God, is speaking to another Lord. David, the author of this psalm, is Speaking of God, the Lord, speaking to his Lord. So the original text says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This king who is coming from the line of David, the son of David, is actually one who is greater than David because David calls him Lord. He will come and he will sit on God's throne. He will share in God's power and authority and sovereignty. He will rule and reign and God will put all things under his feet. Friends, this has been fulfilled in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of David who is Lord he has come and has fulfilled his mission. He has defeated sin and death. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and has been appointed as sovereign king and Lord over all. Jesus is the Lord to whom the Lord God said, sit at my right hand. And one day his enemies will be shattered in the day of judgment, will be placed under his feet, and his kingdom will fill heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord and King. That is his status. The angels, on the other hand, what is their status? They are mere servants. That's what verse 14 says. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve? That word over there, ministering, simply means someone who serves. Right? So or you, could, you could translate, are they not all serving spirits sent out to serve? It's emphasizing their servitude. Jesus sits on the throne. The angels stand around it as servants. Jesus rules from the throne. The angels merely serve to do the will of the one who sends them. The son is superior to the angels in his status. He is enthroned and he is sovereign. He is king and he is Lord. The angels serve him and they bow down before him. And if the angels bow down before this son and worship him, how much more should you and I? This Christ, this king, this Lord is worthy of all honor 
and all worship. He is worthy of all adoration and devotion. He is worthy of the worship of the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is why we gather week after week as subjects of this glorious king assembling in his presence, summoned by his word to sit under his word and worship and adore him. This is why we must be committed to worshiping and gathering because he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our presence. He is worthy of your physical presence in worship. Forget about all this so-called online attending uh, business. No, Jesus is worthy. And we are called to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual service of worship. The king is worthy of the nations to be gathered around his throne and praise him in his holiness. This is why we pray. This is why we gather to pray. This is why we call out to God. Because he is king. Jesus is king enthroned on high. He is sovereign Lord. He rules and he reigns. And we must cry out to him saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is why we must gather, friends. I want to call you. I want to encourage you to make it a priority to gather together for prayer. Come to the congregational prayer meetings. Our king delights to hear our prayers. We are invited into the heavenly majlis of King Jesus, where we can go to him with all kinds of prayers and requests, and he hears and he answers as the one who rules and reigns. This is why we gather. This is why we pray. This is why we go. Because this king is worthy of the worship of the nations. We must go as gospel ambassadors, as ambassadors of the great king who has been enthroned on high. We go to the nations and we proclaim his reign and his rule and his majesty. We proclaim his great gospel and call and invite and pursue the nations, inviting them to come and pay homage to the great king on high. His reign must be proclaimed. His kingdom must be advanced. Jesus, our Lord, your Lord, is enthroned as sovereign king over all. He is king over COVID-19 and the pandemic. This pandemic and virus is under his rule and reign. He is king over the nations. His mission will advance to the ends of the earth. He is king over his people, the church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. He is king over the universe. And I want to ask you, dear brother or sister, is his kingship evident in your life? Is his kingship evident in your family? Do your children see Jesus as king in your home? Is his kingship evident in your priorities and how you use your time? Is his kingship over your relationships in whom you pursue maybe to get married or to date? Is his kingship evident in our sexuality as we pursue holiness? Is his kingship evident at your workplace? Do your co-workers look at your life and see that Jesus is the king whom you serve? In his kingship, is his kingship evident in your suffering? 
so that even when you suffer, you know that Jesus is king. Do you trust him? Indeed, he is. Christ Jesus is king and sovereign Lord, and he is seated on his throne. The question is, how is it that Jesus, a man, could be named God's son, could ascend into heaven and sit on God's throne? How could a man be sovereign and command angels and receive their worship? You see, even in the Old Testament, these promises were a mystery that David's son, the Messiah, the Old Testament promised David's son, the Messiah, would come and reign forever as king, but he would sit on God's throne. How could that be? Well, the only way is if David's son was also David's Lord. The only way for the son of David to sit on the throne of God is if this son who is named the son of God is himself God. And that's what the author helps us to see in the center of this text, in the center of the sandwich of these citations, which leads us to the central set here of comparisons and our second reason why the son is superior. So we saw the outer sets there, verses 5 and 6, verses 13 and 14, show us that the son is superior in his status. But in the center from verses 7 to 12, we see that the son is worthy of our full devotion because he is superior in his substance. The son is superior in his substance, which is to say the son is God. He shares in the very nature of God. His being is the very substance of deity. Look at verses 7 to 12. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And, verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So first, he showed us the superiority in status. The sun is enthroned. The angels bow down. The sun is king. The angels are servants. Now he's speaking about substance, who or what the sun is compared to who or what the angels are. What are they? And in light of that, a question that I would ask you is, what do you know about angels? And as one teacher said, if I may be so bold as to answer that question for you, probably less than you think you know. Angels uh, occupy the popular imagination of our pluralistic, postmodern, spiritual but not religious world, don't they? Uh, they are the subject of countless movies and TV shows, songs, books. They appear on Hallmark gift cards, 
and posters. They're all over the place if you just look. In fact, a religious survey conducted in 2007 found overwhelming number of people even claim to have had encounters with angels. Even 20% of people who don't identify with any religion say that they have met or encountered a guardian angel. And this fascination, fascination with angels in the culture has kind of come into the church as well. I, I've known of churches that were praying that somehow angels would come and visit us and that we would meet them. I distinctly remember early in my Christian life, uh, I was at uh, two different worship services on two occasions. Uh, one in India and one in the West. And I remember the, the song leader saying, wait, 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 we're going to stop because the room is now filled with angels. And I'm looking around. And, and he's, you know, they, they're, they're, they're all around us and they have a green glow, a green glow around them. And, and I remember this other worship service uh, where the pastor's wife got up and she said, oh, the angels are coming. The angels, are, I see them right now descending. And she, they, she started naming them. They all had names, very ang anglicized Western names. And, you know, even in the evangelical church, we have a lot of misconceptions about angels, right? We often think of them as these cute little babies. You know, that's why when you see someone's baby, you say, oh, you have your little angel. Or sometimes some people even think, oh, when we die, somehow we become angels. All of those are unbiblical misconceptions. And the Bible does say a lot about angels in the Old Testament and in the New but friends, this text and this sermon is not primarily about angels, but about Christ, the Son, and His superiority to the angels. And that's especially evident in this central section of our text in which the author compares the substance of the angels with the substance of the Son. We've seen that the Son is superior in His status. Now we see He is superior in His substance, in His very nature. He is superior in His substance because He is the Creator. And the angels are mere creatures. He is superior in his substance because he is eternal and unchanging. And the angels are transitory. They come and go. Look at verse 7. Speaking of the angels here. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The author here is citing Psalm 104. This is a psalm which praises God in his power as creator. It says, God is the creator of all things, including these mighty spiritual beings, the angels. He makes his angels. These spiritual beings, they are fearsome. They are awe-inspiring. Throughout the Bible, when you see people encounter an angel, they are tempted to fall down and worship because it's, the spectacle is so awe-inspiring. They are mighty, yet they are mere creatures whose substance is made by God. God is their maker. Not only are they mere creatures, they are also transitory. They come and they go. The psalm speaks of them as being like winds, like a, like a flame of fire, like lightning flashes and storms that come and go and serve God's purposes in nature. So also are these angels. They are mere creatures and servants in God's hand who come and go and do His bidding. But what about the sun? Oh, the sun is far, far more. The angels are creatures. The sun, he is himself creator. He is God. That's what it says in verses 8 to 12. Look at verse 8. The author cites Psalm 45, in which the king, 
the son of David, is called God. You know, it's uh, common in dialogue with our Muslim friends. Maybe you talk with your Muslim friends. I have a few friends I talk with regularly. And when we talk about matters of faith, when we talk about the Bible, this is always the first question. It's the most common question. Where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? They'll often ask this. And here's a nice passage you can go to right here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. He is speaking of the Son, and he says, Your throne, O God is forever and ever. And you see, in the Old Testament, as people read the Old Testament, verses like these puzzled the Jews and puzzled others alike. How could the son of David be called God? How could this be possible? And the answer is because Jesus is eternally God the Son who takes on human flesh, becoming the son of David, fully God and fully man, so that this psalm is fulfilled in him. He is God in his substance. The son is God in his very nature. And the author then cites something even more astonishing in verses 10 to 12. He says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. The sun is creator. They, that is the heavens and the earth, will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The Son himself is the creator. He created it all. The blazing sun, the moon which shines at night, his hands put the stars in place, the planets, the earth, the oceans, all of it, the work of God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is unchanging. He is always the same. His years have no end. He is outside of time. He is the Lord of time. He is the Lord of history. It all just passes by before his eternal unchanging eyes. Like one of those time-lapse videos that you see on YouTube, you know, where it captures a long period of time and you see the sunrise and sunset and it all just goes fast forward. That's how history passes before the eternal eyes of God the Son. And all of these things, all of creation, heaven and earth, and you and I experience change and decay and ultimately wear out like a garment. You know, my wife has got an eye for this. Right? She's the one who notices that shirt is too old and it's wearing out and you shouldn't wear it anymore. So I'm like, no, I actually like it. It's very comfortable and I want to keep wearing it. And then she said, no, you shouldn't. And then eventually the shirt will disappear and I can't find it in my closet anymore. And then she'll say, we need to go buy some new shirts. <laughs> they wear out. Our clothes wear out. And that's what's happening to you and I, dear friends. That's what's happening to this creation. It's all wearing out, just like an old shirt or an old coat. And one day, King Jesus, the Lord, God, our creator, God the Son, will come. And he will roll it all up. And it'll be done and finished. And the image there in the text is just like when you roll up a garment and throw it into the laundry. That's what he's going to do with this world. He is eternal, unchanging. He is forever the same. He does not undergo the passage of time like we do. He is not affected by age or change like we are. The sun is the same, eternal, unchanging, yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is the same because he is the creator. He is eternal and the rest of us are mere creatures who decay. And if that's true, then he is worthy he alone is worthy of your full devotion and worship. Maybe you're here this morning and 
you come from a particular religious tradition where the veneration of angels or other beings is common. Maybe you're from an Eastern Orthodox background which practices angel veneration. Or maybe you come from the same background that I grew up in. Maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background. And in Roman Catholicism, uh, it's quite common to venerate some created beings like Mary or the saints. But scripture will not allow it, my dear friend. No created being can be the object of our devotion. No created being can function as our mediator between God and man. Only the one who is fully God and fully man receives our worship. Only he can be our mediator. Our devotion, our worship, our veneration must be reserved for the uncreated, unchanging, eternal creator son, our Lord Jesus Christ alone. Or maybe you're not venerating these things. Maybe your life is devoted to venerating other things, things that are transitory, things that are merely part of this creation, things that are temporary. Maybe you are devoted to money or a job or a particular relationship and you think somehow that this will bring you comfort and rest, safety, prestige, I want to call you this morning to give your allegiance to the only one who deserves it, to the unchanging eternal son, your creator. He is unchanging and he is our rock and refuge, the one to whom we can flee, the one who is worthy of our adoration. He is superior to the angels in his status. He is superior to the angels in his substance. And finally, we must give him our full devotion because he is superior to the angels. He is superior in his salvation. Notice what it says in verse 14. The angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Which means that God has provided salvation to be inherited by those who will trust in Christ. God has provided salvation that we inherit through the Son who provides it. The angels merely serve for the sake of those who receive this salvation. That's you and I. And in chapter 2, verse 3 next week, which we'll look at in more detail next week, the author urges us, warns us not to neglect so great a salvation. How desperately, oh how desperately, we need this salvation. This is why the message of Hebrews is so urgent. Why the author keeps on pressing us to keep moving forward. Don't turn back. And you can't stand still. There is no neutral. We must press forward by faith to inherit this salvation in Christ because there is salvation in no one else. And we need this salvation. Think back again to verses 10 to 12. This world is not eternal. It's not going to go on like this, you know, forever. One day this world will decay. It, it is decaying. And one day it will come to an end. The sun will roll it up like a garment, just like you roll up and throw away your laundry. And as sovereign Lord and King and God, He will bring judgment. Think again what it said in verse 8. 
He is the one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Or verse 13, God will place his enemies as a footstool for his feet. One day this superior son, this king, this lord will bring history to an end. He will roll up this world. He will shatter those who have lived in the wickedness which he hates. His enemies will be crushed under his feet in the judgment of eternal punishment under the wrath of God forever. And the bad news is, as sinners and rebels who love wickedness by nature, as those who have lived in wickedness all our lives, that's what you and I deserve. But there's good news. There's good news. Because the one who is Lord and creator and judge of this world is also its savior. Angels didn't die to save us. The son did. And the book of Hebrews will show us again and again this is why the eternal, unchanging Son who is God became a man. This is why He took on human nature to provide salvation to His companions. Did you notice that term in verse 8? It says that He has been anointed. God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who are His companions? It's all of us who trust him. Jesus is the friend and companion of sinners. He became a man to stand in our place as our representative. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then he died the perfect death. Bearing the wrath of God for our sins. Bearing the judgment that we deserve pouring out himself, pouring out his blood, dying on the cross as a substitute to provide us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, salvation from judgment, and calling us into this great inheritance of eternal life and a heavenly city that God has prepared for those who love him. So dear friend, this morning I want to call you, I want to plead with you, urge you, invite you to turn from your sin, to flee from the judgment that is coming, to flee from whatever it is that has entangled you and that holds on to your heart and to give your allegiance and full devotion to the only one who is worthy, to the only one who can provide you with salvation, the one who is God, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who rose again, who ascended in heaven and who rules and who reigns even now. Come to this Son. Come to this King. Come to this Savior. These people were tempted to go back to the law. And the author reminds them, no, no, no. The son, Jesus, he is superior to the angels who gave that law. And he is the fulfillment of that law. He has fulfilled God's promises in a way that the law never could. He rules from God's throne. The angels are just servants. So don't give up when things get hard. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you tempted to go back to? What is that thing that offers you comfort, identity, prestige, safety? 
in times of suffering, what are the former ways of life that you are seeking to return to? To get comfortable, get easy, and then go back. Dear friend, your brother, sister, take refuge in the Son. He is the supreme King and Lord. He is the unchanging Creator God. He is the only one who provides salvation for sinners. And He will not cast out those who come to Him. The road is hard. And the journey is long. And we are often tempted to give up, get comfortable, and go home. But there is no neutral in the Christian life. And there is no turning back. And the Supreme Son calls us to press forward through faith in Him. And as companions of the Son... As companions of one another, let's urge one another and let's keep pressing on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our supreme Savior, Lord and King, our God, the Son, Jesus Christ. May our hearts be fixed on him with full devotion of which he is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.